So keep your Bibles open. We're going to be making our way through that passage. It's dense, as we've seen in uh, 2 Corinthians. It, it is often quite dense. Paul's not dense, that's for sure, but his writings can be. <laughs> All right, so um, we're going to be focusing on verses 11 to 17. Let's pray. Father, we ask that your word does a powerful thing in us this evening. We ask that you might really work through this time we have spending uh, looking at the heart of Paul. Please might it convict us, might it change us, and our hearts be transformed a little bit by your spirit tonight. Amen. So, I'm not a builder, or I'm not, uh, not a handyman, and Erin can definitely attest to that. But I've heard that for centuries, uh, builders, carpenters, cabinet makers have used what are called plumb lines to make sure walls or whatever they're building is being built straight. So a plumb line is, is a straight line, a perfectly straight line, a string, with a plumb bob on the end, like a weight on the end. And so it helps these builders or carpenters or whatever make sure that whatever they're building is being built straight so that down the track they don't realise they haven't built it straight and have to start again. So I'm going to suggest that this evening's passage is like holding up a plumb line to our hearts. This evening's passage is like holding up a plumb line to our hearts. We've been making our way through the letter of uh, 2 Corinthians, and we've seen over and over again that the Corinthians are suspicious of the Apostle Paul. They're not convinced that he really is an apostle of God. Uh, They assume that an apostle of God should be a really impressive leader, as we've said through the weeks. Uh, A leader who has style, who has personal charisma, a leader that looks slick, a leader that could fill stadiums. They're looking for one of those leaders. The Corinthians were focused on the outward appearance of things. But ever since chapter 4, in response to that, Paul has wanted to open up his heart to the Corinthians. Paul knows he's not very outwardly impressive. He probably would have had a limp. He probably probably would have been pretty uh, frail by the time he, uh, or uh, while he was ministering to the Corinthians, he had faced beatings and imprisonments. He was probably permanently bent over, maybe. He knew he didn't look very outwardly impressive, but he wanted them to see his heart, that inwardly he was the real deal. That's what Paul's been doing ever since chapter 4. So a really key verse in the, the, the first seven chapters of the letter is verse 12 of chapter 5. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. So we have this very rare opportunity to look inside the heart of the Apostle Paul. We've got an opportunity to see what makes him tick, what motivates him to to live for the Lord Jesus. And that glimpse into his heart is an opportunity to uh, use it as a plumb line for ourselves. So what uh, makes him uh, serve Jesus with, with, with a uh, sort of dynamite, as, as we know the Apostle Paul uh, lived, uh, is what makes him tick, what makes us tick, is uh, their need to make adjustments in our own hearts. 
They're the type of questions I hope you might ask yourself tonight. So let's jump straight into the passage. Verse 11. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. What drives Paul? Well, it's a fear of the Lord. And that fear of the Lord links back directly to chapter 5, verse 10. Um, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. A couple of weeks ago, uh, Terry tipped this off for me. Um, In the Manly Daily, a man uh, from Narrabeen had seen the pictures of kids going to school, and it made him reflect on when he went to school back in the day he grew up in England. He was apparently having too much fun at home to go to school, or to want to go to school, and so he had a plan that as soon as he arrived at school, he would bawl his eyes out, so that hopefully his mum would take him back home. And so um, his mum, as only a mum would, caught on to the plan. And so instead of taking him first to school, this man uh, was first taken to a local police station. And in his words... The desk sergeant grasped the situation and locked me in one of the cells. I was only inside for three or four minutes and was soon convinced that school had to be better than the hard bed and dreadful toilet. Now that's um, an example of being motivated by fear. Paul fears the Lord because he knows that it's before him, the Lord Jesus, that he lives his life. And it's before him that he'll one day have to give account. But fearing the Lord sounds a little bit frightening, doesn't it? Is it it healthy to live a life sort of from fear? Now, I think fear and faith are two sides of the same coin. Those who, by faith, know the, the grace of God, who know the mercy of God, also know the power of God, the holiness of God, the majesty of God. So faith flips over and has a healthy fear of God. And so they steer away from ways of living that just don't please God. Faith and fear are sort of flip sides of the same coin. Um, But there's fear and there's fear. Uh, One theologian describes what he calls Servile fear, servile fear, that's the kind of fear that a slave might have towards a harsh master. It's an anxiety-inducing fear. It's a fear that paralyzes. That's servile fear. But um, there's also, according to this theologian, that thing's right, there's filial fear. And that is the the fear of a child towards uh, his or her um, father. Uh, The child knows that his father is stronger and bigger than than him him or her. The child knows that it's possible to make his or her dad angry. But because the child knows that his dad or her dad is loving, this this reverence the child has for his father doesn't paralyse the child, but it motivates the child because the child knows that the father is good and loving. And it gives the child security. Because the child knows that the father is strong. When Paul opens up his heart and we have the opportunity to see him, we see that rock bottom is this filial fear, this 
this healthy fear of God. I think the fear of the Lord is something we don't talk very much about. We don't like to think of the concept of fear. But if we see it as a child fearing a father, a good father, a powerful father, then we might see that it's actually a really good place to live from. This place of security. And this place that motivates us to want to please him because he's good to us. But if you look at the passage, you'll notice that this fear of the Lord motivates Paul to want to do a certain thing. It works itself out in Paul's life to do something. So look at it at the beginning of verse 11. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. What does he try to do? We try to persuade others. So here's a bit of a litmus test for you. To to help you realise or try to grasp how much uh, fear of the Lord you have in your heart. How much is it a priority for you to persuade others that they will one day stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul was an apostle. So he um, had a particular burden to, to take every opportunity to persuade others. But we also, we, we know that, that this day will come. We say in our creeds every week or whenever we have a, a creed, we say that, um, that this day will come. We read it in the Bible. We know that this day will come. And so a healthy fear of the Lord will seek out opportunities when they come. We'll pray for opportunities to tell other people about this day, this, this day when they will have to give account to King Jesus. So we see fear as a motivator in Paul's heart, this healthy filial fear. But moving on to verse 14. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Christ's love compels Paul. This is getting into the the deep wirings of Paul's heart. And I think love makes us do the craziest things. I was reading a book prior to Elora coming into the world. And I came across this. You've got to wait for it. Nothing you could say or offer could make me do what I was about to do. No argument could persuade me. No threat could pressure me. Yet I was about to do it voluntarily. Why on earth would I be compelled to do this? What was going on inside of me? Then a simple and clear question formed in my head. Could this be love? Could it be that love was the force, the energy, the compelling drive that urged me to do something that repulsed me and would no doubt repulse you? But now, as I was about to do this gross and disgusting deed, I thought, so this is love. I'm compelled to do this because I love my daughter. Of course, all of these thoughts flashed through my mind in a millisecond as I cupped my hands and caught my daughter's vomit so that she wouldn't get it all over her. Instead of following my natural instinct to jump out of the way, love for my little girl compelled me to stay right by her, letting her know she was not alone and everything was okay. Love makes us do the craziest things. Now, I think when it comes to human behaviour, 
Love is the most powerful force there is. What has the power to change Saul, the persecutor of the church, into Paul, this guy who just gives himself to God's people over and over again, even though he receives nothing in return? What does that? Or a little closer to home, uh, what has the power to have young adults or high school students block out hours every week to look after a ministry. So the youth group, the youth leaders block out four hours every week to serve the youth. And I know many here, the, the kids' church leaders, block out a Sunday morning to serve on kids' church. What does that? Friday night's a sort of good socialing time. What does that? What has the power to make us, instead of our focus in on ourselves and, and sort of be concerned about our own needs first, what makes us sort of look out and ask the question, who can I pull myself out for? What, what makes us do that? That's a small little thing to do, but that's actually a revolution. And the answer is, Christ's love does that. Christ's love is the most powerful force there is. Um, as you can see at the end of verse 14, let's read verse 14 again. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. The love here that compels Paul, that he speaks of, is the love that compelled Jesus to give up his life for us. That's the love that compels Paul. Now, for Paul, the most significant event in human history was not the discovery of fire. It was not the Renaissance or the printing press, even though that's, he wouldn't have known about those two things. The most significant event in human history is the death of the Son of God. In that one death, as he says in verse 14, all died. Uh, Jesus was humanity's representative. He was God come in the flesh, but he was humanity's representative. And as our representative, he took upon himself all our gunk, all our sin, all our corruption, all our evil, all that stuff we read in Isaiah 59, um, all of your worst habits that no one knows about except you, all your sin, all your whatever it is, he took upon himself, he took humanity's sin at that moment, and it all went down to the grave with him. All that. Our sin was buried. He died for all. That those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Now, here uh, we're seeing the heart of Paul, but we're also seeing the heart of Christianity. This is what Christianity is about. What Jesus has done for us on the cross, for all humanity. In that moment, Paul says, all died. I died. You died. All died. He represented humanity. And for those who see that love, that love of God seen on the cross, it will turn a life upside down. It will, it'll, it'll change the, the, um, the orientation by which a life is lived. Um, from being about ourselves to being about him who died for us. 
and was raised again. At the centre of Christianity is this expression of love on the cross. And that's what compels Paul. And so I think a couple of things flow on from this. Love compels Paul. Love compels Paul. I think it's really easy to go about our lives, our busy lives, sort of going from one thing to the next, to sort of uh, leave behind in our thinking that love is what compels our living for God. Love compels us. We sort of leave that behind. And so that's why it's so important, and we keep on talking about this at church, to have practices that give us an opportunity to reflect on the love of Christ. So um, we all know, I think we all know, what those practices are. Are that are most powerful and effective for us. Um, it might be uh, listening to Christian music. That's one way to reflect, reflect on the love of Christ. That Jerusalem song that we sung at the very beginning, I reckon that is one of the most powerful expressions of the love of Christ. Just read those words again. It might be reading old hymns. It'll be reading the Bible, the, the Psalms. It'll be going for a walk and praying and reflecting as you walk. What helps you to reflect on the love of Christ? Because we need to have the love of Christ as the compelling force in our life. We can't just leave it behind and forget about it. Um, and second, Christ's love is costly. It's not, um, it's not sort of a hallmark, sort of hard love. It's, it's, it's costly. Christ's love compels us to do things that we wouldn't otherwise do. It compels us to love in ways that we might not want to love in. That's the type of love Christ has shown us. It's very costly love. And so we need to be doing things that require us to sometimes find it hard to do or require us to sometimes need to pray before we do it because it's hard and we need help. This is costly love that Paul speaks about. And so I hope as I speak, possibly someone is sort of flicking through your mind who could be someone you, you love in that way? I don't know who it might be. Um, someone, a friend at school, who you could go out of your way for to love, who's sort of on the fringe, you could invite in. Um, uh, a neighbour who you know is lonely, or um, a, a friend at university who's having a tough time. Um, who's that person? This love is costly, and if Christ's love is to flow through us, it's going to be a costly love that we express. Now, so we've looked at two things in Paul's heart. We've, we've seen his fear of the Lord. He's sort of living in anticipation of the day he'll have to give account to, to the Lord Jesus. And um, he's a man of faith. So that's a, a, a time to look forward to, but a time not to take lightly. And two, we've seen this love that compels Paul, but we're not finished yet. Verses 16 and 17. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. Paul is talking about a whole new way of viewing things. We no longer regard anyone from a worldly point of view. That historically momentous event that I spoke about a second ago, when Jesus died, when, when, when all humanity died in him, as our representative. That event means that a certain way of viewing the world and other people also died with him. So let me give an analogy. Um, it's sort of like entering a new phase of life. Uh, for me, moving into parenthood, a new phase of life, means that I, I view the world a bit differently. 
Um, when I have a pram and I see stairs without a sort of a, a flat sort of ramp, I see a dead end. When I have a Laura and I see people coughing, I think, no go zone. When I see the temperature forecast and it says 30 degrees, I no longer think it's a great day for the beach. I think it's going to be too hot to go for a walk with a Laura. Entering a new phase brings with it a new way of viewing things. But for people who see themselves and orient their lives around having died with Christ and risen again with him, have a whole new way of viewing things. It's not just a new phase of life. As Paul says, um, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new has come. Not just a new phase. You're a new creature. You're wholly made new. And with that comes a new way of viewing the world. Now, this, uh, this worldly point of view that he speaks of in verse 16, it's at least a way of viewing the world that takes into account appearance only, outward appearance. And so um, the Corinthians were viewing Paul by a worldly criteria, a worldly sort of outwardly appearance criteria. Uh, Paul had scars. He, like I said, he was probably frail. He was bent over maybe. His speaking was nothing to write home about. They saw him and they thought, oh, we don't want him as our leader. Uh, and from this point of view, Jesus was even more of a failure. He didn't own a home. He didn't have a successful career. He had 12 disciples, but they weren't very impressive. He, um, he died at his prime at age 33 in one of the most shameful ways possible. And a Jew at the time would, um, would assume that anyone who dies on a cross is accursed by God. From a worldly point of view, Jesus was a failure. Paul insists that that way of viewing things has died for those in Christ. It died with Christ. So for anyone in Christ, the old has gone, the new has come. We're new, we're made new. So how do we view the world as new creations? Um, I think it results in, in, a, in a, whole new, a whole new view of the world, which I could go into if I had more time, but I'm going to at least say it's not going to be judging by outward appearance. At least it's not going to be that. So that means for us, we should just be a, a little bit weary if we're drawn to the glitzy and the outwardly really impressive um, especially when it comes to, to Christian worship. I'm not saying those, um, if whatever the churches you're thinking about are bad, but I'm just saying we should be weary of them, that the celebrity preaches. When God came amongst us in Jesus, when God revealed his mighty arm in our world, it was in and through the work of a suffering Messiah. It didn't fit the world's categories of impressive. God's most powerful work was on a cross. That's how God has worked for our salvation. We need to have the eyes that see, uh, see that so often God's working most powerfully through the seemingly unimpressive. Um, it might be praying with someone before church who, who obviously needs a bit of prayer. That's a small little thing to do, but that's spiritually significant. It might be uh, serving on parish council. Now, that seems 
boring <laughs> from my point of view. But it's so important. It keeps the wheels of the church turning and that's vital. God works through means like that. It might be um, putting yourself out there to welcome someone. Small thing. Big deal in God's kingdom. We should be weary of the, the, the crowds and the hype. So often God works through the seemingly mundane and uh, unimpressive. So, we've looked into Paul's heart. We've seen the fear of the Lord. We've seen him being compelled by this love that's transformed him. And we've seen that having died with Christ and risen with him, being a new creation, he has a whole new way of viewing things. So those three things are the plumb line that this passage has offered us, that perfectly straight line that gives us an opportunity to see where we're at. Does the fear of God compel us to persuade people? Does the love of Christ compel us to love costly in costly ways? Do we see the world in a whole new way because we're new creations? We've put behind us the, the, the worldly values that have a hierarchy that's just no good. The new creations that have a new way of viewing the world. Now, we know the Spirit regenerates our heart. It's the Spirit who does the work in our hearts that will work these things in us. And so, I'm going to pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you worked so powerfully and mightily in Paul that he, by your power, by your spirit, was transformed to be a persecutor of your people, to be a, a great, persevering lover of your people. Father, we pray that you grow in us a, a fear of the Lord, a healthy fear that, that sees you as holy and majestic and almighty, that you might grow that in us and that that might persuade us to, or to that, might, that might lead us to persuade others. We pray that you might grow in us a comprehension of the depth and width and height of your love for us that led Jesus to the cross. And we pray that you might uh, write into our hearts, inscribe into our minds this new way of viewing the world that you work so mightily through mundane ways. Amen.